Welcome to Podship Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. As world leaders and environmental ministers descended on Glasgow to agree on a plan to curb climate pollution, most of the obstacles to inking the deal centred on who pays for what. The countries in the global south are the least responsible for historic carbon pollution, but are the most impacted by present-day climate disasters. The wealthy countries in the north agree that they have some responsibility, but don't want to pay for the cost. To bridge the gap, all kinds of market-based mechanisms from green finance to carbon trading are being proposed. What isn't being discussed is the underlying financial framework of capitalism, which has played a singular role in getting us into this mess. Because capitalism focuses nearly exclusively on maximizing profits, the exploitation of both human and natural resources has never been part of the balance sheet. The key element of capitalism is the private ownership of the means of production and their operation for profit. This economic operating system for the planet was devised by European economists starting with Adam Smith and has been applied with religious zeal ever since. The high priests of capitalism are economists who both devise and interpret a science to guide countries and companies to manage inflation, print money, and determine where to invest. Economists have been AWOL when it comes to climate change, but without them, we'll not solve this planetary emergency. I meet up with Dr. Carolina Alves, who is the Joan Robinson Research Fellow in Heterodox Economics at Cambridge University. Dr. Alves specializes in macroeconomics and international political economy with regional expertise in Latin America. Heterodox economics is the analysis and study of economic principles considered outside the mainstream or orthodox schools of economic thought. The word heterodox is the antonym to orthodox. Heterodox schools of thought include far-left theories such as socialism, Marxism, and post-Keynesian economics. Heterodox economics often employs research methods and tools that originate in other disciplines such as psychology or physics to economic questions. Carolina is part of a new wave of economists, bringing rigor and curiosity to answering fundamental questions about how markets operate and where reform is needed. I start by asking Dr. Alves where she grew up. I grew up in Brazil. My hometown is uh, called São Carlos, which is around three hours away from São Paulo, the big city. So I'm a countryside girl. The first time I went to São Paulo, I was 17 and I was uh, frightened, but nothing happened. So I do like São Paulo now. (laughs) But yeah, I'm from countryside of Brazil. And how did you even get to a place that you were thinking about becoming an economist? Well, I did grow up in Brazil when we have high inflation. I grew up in a, let's say, working class family. When my parents would get paid, <laughs> would go next day to the supermarket and buy everything uh, from, uh, like, I don't know, 30 uh, things of uh, beans or uh, I don't know how many packs of rice and, and everything that day because next day it would be impossible to afford. And that has always got my attention 
I didn't know what was going on behind, but I could hear my parents having discussions about that and I was concerned about prices. So prices, uh, they are, yeah, they're a part of my childhood in a way that I don't think people who didn't grow up in, in countries uh, with hyperinflation, they would understand what that means. So I was very curious about that. My mom is a very political animal in the sense that she was always, uh, she always believed that you have to vote to cause changes. So she encouraged me to be more social, you know, to be socially aware of the issues we had in Brazil. She was the one making the connection between high prices and poverty uh, to me, which, I mean, in her own way, right? I think every single household in Brazil in the 80s somehow knew a bit, a bit about economics regarding prices and poverty and difficulties to, to raise their kids. So that was my environment. And, and I just decided that I need to learn more about economics at a very, very early age, I think. But it wasn't until I was 17 with the pressure of applying for universities where I realized that economics was that field where I could understand what was going on <laughs> in economy. So you're 17, you grew up in rural Brazil. I mean, what, what do you do next? What, what does studying economics look like? It was a, a very uh, fascinating and interesting subject. I I am from a generation <laughs> when we didn't rely on textbooks to learn in economics. And I, I went to university in Brazil a little bit before Americanized way of teaching in higher education. So I had a very, what we call now pluralistic or even heterodox uh, education, um, economics education. I'm from a generation where we had a very broad uh, way to understand economics. Uh, it was very critical. I was very lucky to have a professor who was uh, a student of Kaletsky, which uh, is a, a Polish economist, uh, very famous in a heterodoxy. So he was a huge influence on me. I had another uh, professor who was uh, very influenced by the Communist Party in Brazil. So that was my contact with Marx. So I had also a very, let's say, lefty <laughs> uh, economic education. So it was fun. I started university when first in Brazil went through three to four months of strike. And instead of going back home, I and many others, we stayed in university organizing strike activities. So I always look back and I think that was a moment where perhaps I was radicalized a bit. I was in contact with many people that were already heavy involved in politics at the time. And I started learning what Brazil was really, <laughs> why strikes were important. And yeah, so it was an amazing combination. Why is striking important? If you want to climb socially. And uh, our university in Brazil, universities in Brazil were very elitist. It was a massive strike. The agenda of that strike was from, yeah, from better paid, but also to the role of university in countries such as Brazil. So that's why it was a moment. I, I never saw university in that way. I think up to that moment, when I saw universities in a very individualistic way, in what sense? I mean, I need this degree to do good, but also to succeed. And I think, and that's my view up to now, universities, despite being elitist, <laughs> but it's a, a place of... Um, you know, free thoughts where you have freedom of thinking, where you can actually discuss radical ideas. And this is where many things, uh, many productive critical thought happens in Brazil. So I was 
trying to defend that space as well. <laughs> strikes are a form of resist, uh, really, and we have to, and people, they're very against the strike sometimes because it disrupts my life. But that's the point of a strike. If you don't disrupt someone else's life, you don't get the attention to understand that a specific problem needs to be solved. Like many of the issues at the climate conference in Glasgow, I would say nearly all of them, risk and damage, uh, the relationship between North and South, the cost of carbon, these are all issues for economists. And yet we really, we focus on environmentalists and politicians and campaigners, but economists, like, they feel like they're late to the party, Carolina. (laughs) I think they are. That is, is is indeed something that the economics profession is trying to, to keep up. Economists and the entire history behind the origin of our disciplines is to understand, you know, wealth, generation of wealth, and then together with that, the distribution of that wealth, how we organize production, <laughs> how we then produce, uh, have a production that, how, how we divide them. And I think in that discussion, we just left the way we deal with the environment and nature and, um, you know, a conception of environment more broadly, we just lost it. We didn't look into that. So we are talking about production. You're talking about facts of production such as labor and capital, but the the resources, they don't get in that discussion, not only the use of these uh, natural resources also implying that you may be destroying the planet. How are we going to deal with that, especially when you get into a area of mass production and consumption? And I think that has become a problem when we could see two things. The, so the, the global south countries not catching up and poverty increasing their countries in these countries, but also when we start seeing the pollution resulted from developed econ- advanced economies and how they, they produce things having effects on global south countries as well regarding uh, pollution and, and increase of temperatures around the world. And I think when we start facing that perhaps 70s or end of the 60s, there are economists that start coming out and say, look, we have a problem of, of how we have a global a division of labor where global south countries, they essentially just provide these primary resources. The way the system is doing that is exploitative and uh, that has consequence for these countries. There is an economist, uh, a Brazilian economist by coincidence called Celso Furtado, who wrote a book in 1973 called The Myth of Development, where he's bringing their discussions regarding Global South countries can never have this level of consumption that developed economies, they do. And if, if we tried, if Global South countries tried, we would destroy the earth. And then uh, he also questioned how the consequences of uh, Global South countries providing all the resources that is necessary to maintain the consumption standards that developed economies they had at the time. And Celso Furtado, as many, you know, uh, economists that are not English speakers, but also that are criticizing capitalists, was definitely dismissed, even if he had an international reputation. But also Celso Furtado was one of the first economists that started getting our attention that we have, as economists, we have a true have interdisciplinarity in our analysis. So Celso Furtado, he was engaged in sociology. He was looking to, into culture, he, like patterns of consumption in different countries. He was trying to question or to see society in a much broader way. He was actually engaging with a group of scientists, not economy, economists at the time, who, who were calculating how we couldn't actually keep up with the U.S. pace of production industrialization. 
Celso Furtado's critique was, you know, capitalism in a way it is, is not sustainable because we follow the profit uh, motive instead of uh, human needs. So let's keep on that. So if you look at that critique, maybe help us through it. So that capitalism is looking at the profit motive, whereas what we really need is human and planetary needs. Like, how do we reconcile those two things? We have to move away from this market-oriented approach to where profit is the driver of uh, all this progress that we praise so much since the Enlightenment. You know, there is a way to do economics where we are challenging not only the profit motive, but what drives profit. Um, for example, from Marx, we know that profit, Marx would argue that profit is the reason of, uh, you know, uh, of entire capitalism and how capitalists are actually, uh, what drive capitalists. But for example, you get Kaletsky, who is falling from Marx, he say, well, yes, but actually the main point is investment, is the decision of invest, which then take us to the capitalists themselves. What we have to do is to understand that by the end of the day, in that mode of production called capitalism, we have to have a serious discussion about investment, about profit and about market and how we want to deal with that and how we're going to allow investors and capitalists and their profit motives to direct that that discussion of not only the environment, but even the transition, right? Uh, for example, we know from, from um, COP26 that we have big investors and big banks really pushing for this $5 a ton kind of uh, price to end uh, you look into that and say that that's the way to go because we, we have a price here, we have a, a price uh, signaling, as we say, in economics. So the market will respond to that and you're going to have this shift to a low carbon kind of investment or renewable and then we're going to be fine. And that's the problem. When we're doing that, we're not challenging can we rely on market again? Can market deliver that change? Why we are not talking about a more planned way to transition where we do have some actors in that design, which definitely has to be the state and even the private sector, but it has to be in a way that we just don't rely on the market in that way or in big investors or big private sector. History is showing us that when we do that, things can end up going very badly. If you think about the shock therapy, which many Eastern European countries went through and also Latin American countries went through, what was that? It was like a market can solve the problem of development, right? And that will be fine. And it just didn't work. And now we are again relying on this price signal or in relying on prices to have this transition to a green economy. And, uh, and I think this is a mistake that economists are heading to. And that mistake is related to how economists understand the economy, which is basically a market view of the economy where profit is the only reason how we can get progress here. Carolina, how can we learn from the mistakes of the past? We can't, again, just go back to developing countries and say, liberalize your market, then investors will come in, green investors, right? And uh, what we have to do to attract them is basically uh, find a way to de-risk the green investment. So it may be that we hedge that, and again, we have all this focus on finance, and we know that that also didn't end up very well <laughs> with the 2007-8 crisis. We need some more... Um, effective way to <laughs> to intervene in that discussion. 
But as far as the economics profession goes, and if econom- economists will come to that discussion, why they're not leading that, if they come to that discussion, they have to come with different tools. And they have to come having a conversation with different disciplines, from epidemiologists to ecologists to sociologists to philosophers, uh, and not only with a very narrow idea of what economics is, which is very focused on markets, supply, demand, and the profit kind of motive when it comes to uh, climate change and uh, the, the idea of this the, uh, green transition. You have to look into that very carefully and very seriously. Yes, we're going to get have a backlash regarding how we finance that. And that is a big discussion <laughs> in economics as well. Pandemic showed us that we don't have a, a resilient society in place right now. So how we do this and how we do this having uh, together with a, a green transition or heading to a society where we are able to reduce carbon uh, emission the main outcome from the COP26, at least for more mainstream economies, but also politicians and international institutions, is the carbon kind of price um, discussion, but also the question of carbon tax. And, uh, and that's the focus. But the thing is, you have to think, for example, that carbon tax can be very regressive. And you had the, the example in, in France, which was a kind of a little laboratory for every single government around the world that were trying to do that without reducing equality first. Because when Macron did that, what happened was who actually was hit with that carbon uh, tax were people in areas that were relying on uh, need cars to go to work, didn't have public transport and they couldn't afford that anymore. Or in prices, of course, uh, is in people who actually were impacted by um, rising prices. So I think if you're going to go for these carbon taxes uh, or even um, carbon uh, trying to make carbon more expensive to then generate it or encourage other forms of low carbon energies, I think we need to have a discussion of how we do that, reducing inequality or at least compensating the poorest layers of society. And I think France now is a good example because they are focused on building tube stations in these areas. If you are increasing prices of something, for example, we can have some kind of uh, discount when it comes to public health system or things like this. So the part of the population that is uh, suffering that impact because they are the poorest part of uh, the society, they have something that they can compensate. I don't think anyone would be against a green transition, right? But if that will impact what you can provide to your family and how we're going to survive, obviously you're going to think twice. And we don't need that divide right now. <laughs> we need everybody in one thing. And I think this, you know, to unite society, not only societies within a country, but also globally, we need to have in mind inequality and in how we're going to do both at the same time. And that is also related to developing the, the global south, global north, global south dichotomy. There is the inequality among countries is also important in uh, how we're going to do that in a way, again, that we allowed for countries such as Brazil to carry on or at least to aim for economic growth and keep unemployment low in these countries. So the green jobs that would come, that will be generated from a green investment, will that actually balance out? Or how are we going to deal with this level of unemployment that will more likely to happen? So I think... The question of inequality is not a specific one regarding the impact that, for example, carbon uh, tax would have in poorest uh, sectors of society, but also among countries and also regarding the question of economic growth uh, and uh, unemployment. Because developing countries 
you know, to use a very economic term, they're still trying to catch up. And the green transition may impact that somehow. And we have to have a conversation, an honest conversation with these countries in a way that they are willing to take that. But we have to offer them something. We can't, again, leave them behind. If you were an economics minister in any country and you wanted to help move people towards a more just society, the current system doesn't feel like it has inherently the structure in order to do that. So what what reforms or what things should people be looking at? I think by now it's very obvious that I'm a bit against capitalism. <laughs> uh, in a sense that the way we have capitalism right now, so what I would like is us to join forces to, to think about a different way to organize society. But that is, uh, I know, not on a long-term goal, but also not so practical f- in, in a short ter- term. So I think what I would do if I have opportunity to intervene in, in a political debate and in the policymaking, especially in developing countries, a strong welfare state is one of the more efficient ways to reduce uh, inequality and poverty that provides support for families uh, regarding, you know, public health system, but also which kind of support we give to children, um, how we help households or families to have access to the minimal things in society that can help them keep to keep going. And I think uh, we need to look at these uh, three aspects, not from the profit market perspective, but as something that feminist economists call foundational economy, which is something that economists in the more mainstream way can't think about it, which is a kind of eco- uh, a part of society where is not organized or oriented by uh, through the market mechanisms, we afford that. How we, we have this foundation economy where uh, most of the population can have access to care. I do believe we need uh, a strong state, especially in that sense of the welfare state uh, that provides this foundation economy. And I'm not against bringing the private sector there if we need to, but we have to be very clear. We have to be very clear that these are not profitable sectors. Um, so I think this would be a first step. We can't tackle inequality or the power imbalances we have within countries and among countries if we don't go back to also understand the legacies of colonialism, that global enough divide. Uh, We can't really keep believing that everything that developed economies did in the last 100 years following their own logic can be implemented in developing countries and global south countries, and you're going to have the same outcome. So we need to think about that as well, because that is, is one way to try to tackle the inequality among countries. How is your own journey from rural Brazil to, you know, Cambridge University impacted how you relate to the world? One thing I realized moving from Brazil to here, and I had realized already in Brazil when I leave, I, I left my like working class environment and went to university, is that there's something that in here in Cambridge I saw, so, I, I saw it so well, which is this entitlement that people they have. And that entitlement, which sometimes, most of the time is really bad, but some of the times, some, sometimes are really important is where you are able to express yourself and defend yourself and, and, and understand that you're entitled to have that. That is something you don't see. I grew up not seeing that. I grew up in, in, in an environment where people, they're very apologetic all the time. They don't think they have the right to have education. They don't think they have the right to have a, a good service when they go to the hospital because 
without education, we don't make people aware of what they need. And I think there's something that I see in education now, which is, which is this entitlement that I, I would like everybody to have, because if you give them this entitlement that we see very well in Cambridge students, <laughs> for example, they can be more demanding and they can bring, bring people to account more easily. And that perhaps could be a way to, to make things to change as well. And because, of course, of inequality, you know, by the time you're 11, 12 in Brazil, you're probably going to start working to help your family. So you're literally going to uh, spend your time in life sometimes without, uh, so not sometimes, very often without uh, knowing how to learn, how to read and, and write. And that the, the point, the, uh, the, the issue with that, well, there are many issues with that, is that most of these people, they don't have this entitlement that I think is important for you to demand the minimum that you need to be happy in many senses, physically, but also emotionally. So, yeah, so I think education for me has this aspect, which I have been trying to put together more recently, how we make people entitled <laughs> in a good way. And I think education is a part of it. Yeah, some people may need a little less entitlement and other people may <laughs> yeah. need a little more entitlement. You need, yes. you need to distribute uh, entitlement, yeah. <laughs> entitlement, sorry, entitlement around the society. Yeah, yeah. that's a good way. You have had a policy for yeah. that. Yeah. You have a two, you're too entitled, so you need to give 10% of that right. to someone else. <laughs> Maybe like 45, 50%. Yeah. Yeah, in most <laughs> cases, yeah. Especially here in Cambridge, it feels like this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the white male entitlement could be given to the rest of the, the world. I will not. Yeah. disagree. <laughs> um, Carolina, when you when you go into like a stuffy, like we're in Cambridge right now in a very rarefied, you know, room with like, do you threaten people just by saying, you know, you're a Brazilian female <laughs> Marxist economist? Do people know what to do with you? Like when you when you come into these rooms? Oh, dear. It has been a very interesting experience here. Most of my students, they're not expected to be taught by me. And I'm still wondering if they're not expected because I'm either a woman or I'm from the global south or I am Marxist slash heterodox. <laughs> I don't know what they don't. I, I, I know that I'm definitely not what they're expecting. I think the gender and um, the nationality aspect is definitely the thing that come across very easily for them. And it's interesting because I spend most of the first term in Cambridge trying to to get the students on my side. So, and that's why preparation is very hard for me and I have to be obviously much sharper than, than my white male colleagues because I need to get them on my side. I need to convince them that I know what I'm doing. You know, it goes both ways. Sometimes I do get the students. We have a fantastic relationship and I can relax a bit and then teaching becomes much easier. But sometimes they will never accept me. And I have, I think now after four years, I have to accept they will not accept me and perhaps that's fine. And I think it took me a while to realize that uh, some of these obstacles regarding how I teach and how students will see me is related to my gender and my race and, and my nationality. I think for a very long time, I used to associate that with uh, not being good enough, not being clever enough, not work hard enough. So I, I think now at least I've been with a lot of help of sharing things with colleagues that, with both white male colleagues, they'll say, I don't face that. Oh, but you did the same than me. Well, let, let's analyze that. And also uh, uh, women uh, that would say, okay, I've been through the same thing and, and this is a, just a danger, gender issue, just don't worry about it. I mean, in the sense that you can't do better, right? You are doing better, but you're a woman. So that's, you're not going to really impress them the way you'd like to. So I think uh, with a lot of talking and also my, my trajectory in terms 
terms of I start discussing decolonization in a more trying to understand what that is. And decolonization made me think about positionality and how a discussion about the position you have in society and how people see you because of that. That has actually impacted how I see myself. So I'm trying to now understand that there is, I have a certain position in society and that would, the outcome of that is people's perception of me will vary and I have to learn how to deal with that and how to identify that. Cambridge is a label and has a structure that allowed me to be much more vocal than other colleagues in other institutions. And of course, that has a price, <laughs> but I think I'm willing to pay that price. I have here a platform that I'm trying to use in a very constructive way when it comes to issues within economics regarding the lack of women uh, or regarding the lack of uh, uh, black people or regarding the approach that highly mathematized and, and neglect other issues in society. But it has been a very interesting journey and uh, I'm still you know, trying to understand my position here. I am uh, a little bit of outsider. And that sometimes can be very hard. But as long as I can use that platform to improve my discipline and, and give other voices a platform. What would you encourage women to think about getting into economics or people of colour that just feel like, oh, my God, I'd never think about getting into <laughs> economics? Like, So uh, eco economics is not attractive to both uh, women but also uh, people of colour. And, and there are many reasons for that. And people are looking to that. It has to do with how we teach economics. It has to do with how we portray uh, economics. So, for example, the difference between the ratio inequality, the economic ratio inequality, for example. Uh, economists, they struggle to explain that because we're relying on a marginal productive of labor to explain uh, the wages. And according to that theory, in a perfect competition, in the long run, we're all going to get paid the same. But the gap between, of course, black workers and, and white workers is there. The realities, we always um, clash. And I think if you are a person of color getting into that discipline and you start dealing with that theory, you're really going to feel alienated. And the same with uh, uh, women. There are something in economics where and there are studies showing that that women, they tend to have different policy prescription and different takes when it comes, from, for example, to the role of the state or when it comes to uh, health insurance for workers. And I think what that shows is if we don't explain in a very convincing, coherent way, for example, why the state shouldn't be interventionist, where you have women that would probably much more receptive to that foundational uh, economy we talked before, probably they're not going to feel that that's their subject. We need more women and more people of color. We need to fight for economics to be better. And I don't want to lose. Uh, we keep losing women and people of color. But I think economics is too important for that to happen. Politicians, actually, they are relying on economists more than ever. We are devising government, we are devising private sector. So we have to fight for a discipline that's better, that teach their its students and researchers better. So we need <laughs> women to come and, and, and people of color to come. If there are good things from the pandemic is that this conversation between economics and other disciplines is happening. We have to live on a planet that's habitable and... It feels like we don't have very long to do it. And you've got a different thinking frame than modern, traditional, orthodox economics. So what, what would your prescription be? I think it's a fight that all of us should be involved. Uh, I think climate change can't be 
part of the conversation in a way like religion or politics that people say, oh, I don't discuss religion. Oh, I don't discuss politics. I think we got a point where all of us, we have to to be aware of what's happening regarding climate change and, and green transition. And, uh, and that, for me, kind of, let's say, has um, two roads we, we have to follow. There is an individual one, which you have to be very careful because politicians like to just focus on that, on that one, which is, as a consumer, how we can demand that things change. From boycotting you know, a fossil fuel company to not buying things... Uh, from that company, uh, start recycling more or become a vegan. All this is fine and we have to be aware and we have to be doing, but we have to be very careful that some of these changes, that would be 0.1% of the carbon emissions, but we have to do it. So I think there is that road where is more about us as individuals, which you need to be, you have to face it. And, and be very careful when politicians said, you have to do that, you have to say, stop it. I'm doing because I... I want to be part of this debate. I'm responsible, but I can't change what you guys have been doing for the last 40 years or 100 years. And that's, for me, is the second road. How you intervene in, in a broader debate from attending COP26, from protesting, from voting, uh, how we do this and the time you have to allocate for that. And I think this is important, how you make economists and politicians accountable for this. And that involves to slow down economic growth and the, some idea of progress that comes with it. How about central banks? Can they can they play a larger role in this in this green transition? Central bankers they have lots of power to cause systemic change. One of them is to bring to their mandate um, the entire discussion of climate change and green transition, like have that core the same way they have regarding inflation. Central banks have the power to to control not only the creation of money <laughs> in society, but also the distribution and allocation of that money. And they're they going to have to, you know, to assume that role without saying we can't, we have to let the market, the rates to, to adjust. They have to really have an interventionist role if we want some, in, some solution that is... Uh, in the short term, that actually meet the needs we have because we need a solution now. And in the last 40 years, we have seen a separation between central banks and treasury or central banks and, and government because it comes from the 70s, all this change in how we understand central banks. And I think perhaps that's the moment of central banks saying the separation doesn't exist. We're going to work together with the government and we're going to find a way to impose that green transition. I think we shouldn't shy away from the word of imposing and intervening uh, because otherwise it's not going to have a systemic change. A huge thank you to Dr. Carolina Alves for talking to Podship Earth today. You have to be incredibly brave to question the assumptions underlying capitalism and I really appreciate Carolina for doing just that. In a discipline dominated by white men from the global north, Carolina's fight to make economics more equitable, representative, and focused on social good comes not a moment too soon. We live in a time when the world's richest 22 men have more wealth than all the women in Africa, and yet it remains heretical to suggest that capitalism needs reforming. The economic tools employed to tackle the climate emergency need to empower those with the least rather than add to their existing vulnerability. We need a true cost accounting of both human and environmental capital so that these so-called externalities are internalized into every economic decision. The era of runaway capitalism must come to an end 
if we are to save the planet. I want to thank each of you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey. From the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spade, executive producer David Kahn, and from me, Jerry Bluenfeld, who knew that questioning conventional wisdom could be this fun? Podship Earth.